Hello and welcome to High Heels and Heartache, a podcast featuring interviews with experts on the topics you're most curious about and people with extraordinary stories. My name is Kendall Ann Combs and I am your host. On this episode, I chat with Dr. Chloe Carmichael about how to drink mindfully and moderately. Dr. Chloe is an expert in mindfulness and she has come up with this fabulous idea about applying all of those mindfulness techniques in order to be able to drink alcohol moderately. She really breaks it down for us. So even if you're new to mindfulness or maybe you uh, meditate daily and you're a yogi, either way, Dr. Chloe really gives us some great tips. So Coming right up, Dr. Chloe Carmichael. I'm here with Dr. Chloe Carmichael. Hi, Dr. Chloe. Hi, Kendall. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much for being here today. The pleasure's mine. So you're here to talk about this really cool article that you wrote called How to Drink Mindfully and Moderately. But before we dive into the article, you have extremely impressive credentials. So I'd love to give you a minute to kind of brag on yourself and uh, give us a little information about all the fabulous work you've done and the training that you've gotten. Sure. Well, thanks, Kendall. Um, Just to connect it really with the topic of mindful drinking, um, I was a yoga teacher before I was a clinical psychologist. So Right now, um, I'm a clinical psychologist and, of course, an author. So my two books are Dr. Chloe's Ten Commandments of Dating, as well as Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety. But, you know, many, many years ago, probably decades at this point now, um, I started off as a yoga teacher. So the body-mind connection has always been important to me. I, I do love to enjoy cocktails. You know, I I've done a lot of my, some of my other articles and things are about networking and, you know, good times. And I, you know, I love to have some good drinks with people. So I also living in Manhattan for you know, 20 years or whatever. Um, it's, it's the city, you know, that kind of runs on cocktails. So I found not only for myself, but that also a lot of clients, you know, we were kind of struggling because we could feel like our tolerance was grow, you know, going up sometimes. But then at the same time, really good things for ha- were happening for us when we were out there drinking. And so we were just trying to figure out like the right space, you know, um, because I'm not an alcoholic and I, I actually personally don't treat and work with alcoholics because it's not my area of expertise. But I do work with a lot of people who like to work hard and play hard. And, you know, that would also be me. So Mm -hmm. we're looking, you know, sometimes just for tips on how we can do that, but how we can do it in a way that's actually mindful and really keeps us in the pleasure zone. But anyway, I know you asked about my credentials more. So as I said, I'm a yoga teacher and then became a clinical psychologist and then an author. And my recent book, I'm proud to say, was endorsed by Deepak Chopra. Awesome. And my therapy business actually grew to the point where I had to hire other therapists. And um, I recently joined Entrepreneurs Organization. I guess it's not so recent, maybe five years ago, but um, it requires a minimum annual uh, documented revenue of $1 million annually. Wow. So the business has definitely grown and managing people and um, growing the business has been great. And just to wind it up, I'll also say I'm happily married and I have a wonderful little four-year-old son. Oh, 
that's wonderful. Well, congratulations on all your success. It's it's clear that you are a very hard worker and you, you earned every ounce of that success. So good on you. Well, thank you. You know, for me, work and play, they've always overlapped. I've, I've, I'm so thankful truly that, you know, for me going to school for, you know, an additional six years after um, undergrad is the six years, pretty much the minimum that you can go to get a PhD in clinical psychology. And it was truly a labor of love. You know, I mean, yes, it was hard work, but it was also awesome work to just, you know, spend that many years studying the mind and the brain and behavior and how people work. I mean, it was, I don't want to say it was a vacation, but it was, it was actually very pleasurable. <laughs> well, that education should be right. Yes. <laughs> okay. So before we like really dive into the topic and you mentioned it, that, you know, you don't necessarily treat um, alcoholism or addiction. So when we're talking about how to drink mindfully and moderately, who is this to like, what, what population of people should, can take this advice to heart? Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, certainly people who like to drink. <laughs> so if, if you don't like to drink, you know, then there's no need to try to make yourself learn you know, how, to, how to do it. You know, I mean, so I, I would say, first of all, it's for people who like to drink. Um, but I would also say that it's for people who don't have a clinical problem with drinking. So as a psychologist, the way that I kind of start to separate that for people, and there's no 100% black and white guidelines, but the general way that psychologists are going to look at that is going to be things like, you know, do you have dramatic personality changes? Like when you drink, do you suddenly become angry and belligerent? You know, if yes, this is not the approach for you, you know, like, okay. if, or like, for example, if you're somebody that, um, has been arrested or had your, you know, have had to go to the hospital and have your stomach pumped and your drinking behaviors, you know, have typically, you know, and I don't just mean like one time or something, but, you know, even though for me, I'll say I've never had any of those experiences, but I also just want to, you know, recognize that people can have, you know, a certain experience in life and it doesn't have to mean, you know, that they're an alcoholic for the rest of their lives per se. But these are just general indicators. If you're somebody that runs into legal trouble, you're somebody that runs into medical trouble, you're somebody that runs into relationship problems, et cetera, because of your drinking, then my approach is probably not going to be the right one. It would probably be one that would be more geared around um, you know, something a little bit stricter, but mine is more just for people that kind of get a little caught up in the work hard, play hard, or who maybe have a little social anxiety and they, you know, have a, have a few drinks and kind of start thinking, well, maybe more will be better. And they just want to learn how to put some boundaries around it, but they're not having any, you know, legal or medical or, you know, issues like that or work problems, et cetera, in their life due to Perfect. alcohol. And I think that that's a lot of people who, you know, are, are drinking alcohol can definitely use this good advice. And there are obviously reasons why people drink. So what are some of the personal and professional benefits to being able to drink moderately? Yeah, well, I mean, I've experienced many of them, right? <laughs> so, I mean, I think certainly in dating, um, it's kind of a natural thing for many people to have a drink or two together because 
what you're doing is you're kind of both letting down your guard a little bit. We know that for most people, alcohol makes us a little bit less inhibited, a little bit less likely to censor ourselves. And so when you and a date have a drink or two together, it's almost like you're kind of holding hands and jumping into the deep pool together. And you know that you're both going to mutually let your guard down and share a little bit, right? So Mm -hmm. to me, that's, you know, one obvious benefit. I'll also say that in terms of business and networking, so the way that I actually got my book deal for Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety, which again was, you know, to me, it was a pretty major book deal. Like it was published by Macmillan and it got endorsed by Deepak Chopra. And it started because of a couple of reasons that had to do with drinking. Um, So one is I had a a really good friend who's a publicist. She's not my publicist, but you know, I just, I love to talk to people who know about the press. And so I will invite anybody out that I meet that I want to kind of pick their brain. I'll invite them out to some fabulous restaurant where, you know, they're going to service them drinks and that kind of stuff. And that does slow people down and people linger and they talk. And it was over that dinner um, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, Trustees Dining Room that she shared with me that she really thought I should write a book and all this stuff. And then, so that's one way where drinking, you know, helped us to get creative and spend some time together. And it was a natural way for me to invite somebody that I didn't actually know that well and then end up, you know, kind of having this big meandering afternoon long, you know, I guess it was a lunch actually. But then what happened is after she, you know, told me to write the book, I was then sitting at a restaurant bar, um, working with my laptop, you know, writing, you know, some stuff, trying to prepare for the book, which again is to me yet another benefit of drinking is it does kind of relax us and it slows us down. And especially for somebody like me that sometimes does have a lot of nervous energy. (laughs) Having a drink or two kind of does, you know, just slow me down a little bit, which is nice. But anyway, there I was at the restaurant bar, just working with my laptop on the book. And I happened to be working in the Flatiron uh, District in Manhattan, which is a publisher-heavy neighborhood. It wasn't by design. It was just where I lived at the time. And so next to me was this woman who was, you know, happened to be an editor at a major publishing house. And again, because we're both sitting there, we're drinking, our guards are down a little bit. The conversation kind of flowed and I shared what I was working on and she shared that she was a publisher. Next thing you know, she's asking, you know, to get a copy of what I'm writing. And so then she's sending it around. Next thing you know, to her friends. And then I'll tell you one more time, Kendall, where drinking came in 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 a positive way in this. So she passed it around to some of her friends who, you know, one of them ended up being very interested in it, but couldn't get her publishing house to take up on it. So she invited me out then when she was having drinks with some other friends and um, she kind of staged it almost like it would be happenstance that I was going to be there. And like we sat down and talked a little bit about my book. And then the conversation was going to kind of then pivot away from that without these particular people at the table making a move on my book, which is what she wanted them to do. Um, And so as the conversation started to pivot away, she literally pounded the table in a playful way a couple of times and said, hey, wait a minute, guys, we can't let this conversation go on before we talk more about one of you has to be able to help Chloe with her book. And she said it in a playful way when she pounded the table. And I just somehow don't think that if we hadn't been at Dos Caminos having margaritas 
that that would have just kind of flowed out the way it did. But but thanks to what she she did, and I have thanked her for this many times, is that one of them did kind of be like, all right, let's take a second look. Let's talk about it. And that was the connection that led to my book deal. Oh, wow. So am I, am I right when I'm saying it? So drinking moderately, not getting like rip roaring drunk, but no. drinking moderately can help us make connections with people. It kind of lowers our inhibitions, which those two things can, can be positive. And it lowers the inhibitions of the other people around you, right? Yeah. And so if, you, if you're drinking, it can make the other people around you feel more comfortable to drink. So it not only is lowering your inhibitions, but it's lowering the inhibitions of the people around you. And it can just kind of slow things down a little bit. Um, and again, I, I know other people have other ways. And as you said, clearly, definitely not getting rip-roaring drunk. I'm sure if I had been <laughs> some kind of a drunkard in any of these situations, Nobody would have wanted to talk to me about a book deal, you know, especially not one called Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think in small amounts, and again, certainly not for everybody. I'm not trying to say people should drink if they're doing great without it. But I do want to say that, at least in my experience, there's been some upsides to responsible, moderate drinking. Awesome. Okay, so we know that you're a yoga teacher. So... I I can see how you're into mindfulness and meditation. You know, that's really connected to yoga. But how did you make the connection with that and how all of those interesting kind of rules of meditation and mindfulness could then be applied to drinking alcohol? How did you, how did you get your brain to connect those two things? Well, you know, I mean, it honestly wasn't really that big of a bridge because at least for me, a yoga is connected to a, a real awareness of your body and an awareness of your mind. You know, in my book, Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety, I talk a lot about mindfulness and that what it really is purely is, is metacognition, the ability to think about your thoughts in many ways. Um, and so coming from that yoga background, the ability to observe yourself without judgment um, is really key to most everything. Um, and that includes your body. And so for me, learning to observe what my body felt like when I was drinking um, and even learning to savor, you know, that, that literal buzz that we feel or even learning to savor and enjoy and notice what was going on with my mind as I, you know, might start to get more enthusiastic or extroverted or, you know, some of the things <laughs> that can happen for me and for many people with alcohol were, were helpful. But then I also noticed that I am somebody that will often say more is more. If I like a song, I want to turn it up. If I like a book, I want to read it, read it, read it. If I like a person, I want to be around them. You know, I think that's why my my business and, you know, other areas of my life have grown because, you know, I'm a very passionate person and I often just more is more is my, is my sometimes <laughs> wrong approach to things. Um, and so I, I was able to notice that with alcohol, especially after I turned 40, I would sometimes start to get hangovers, which I had never had before. And, you know, really was just asking myself, like, you know, what's going on with this, you know, um, I, I had never really had to monitor my drinking before. Like I said, I just, I've never been somebody that um, ever drank to the point of 
you know, being any kind of a bother to others, you know, or anything <laughs> like that. Um, but it, so it was just more out of my own experience of getting my first hangover and also of talking to clients, you know, that were also kind of struggling with the same thing, but not, not wanting to be in black and white thinking about it either. And just say, well, all alcohol is bad, or we're going to have to limit it. Cause I also don't really respond very well to, to hard limits. So that's I. how I came <laughs> up with this idea about the mindfulness, finding your drinking sweet spot and noticing that there is a certain number of drinks that actually leads to that maximal pleasure feeling. And that after that number of drinks, you're getting what we call a diminishing ROI, a diminishing return on investment of each drink. And it might even be starting to produce some unpleasant feelings either now or the next day. And learning to be mindful of that was important because again, also I and many of the clients I work with can be kind of perfectionist. Mm -hmm. And the problem with perfectionism is it can make you unwilling to notice mistakes because it's so painful. And so I think for many people, myself included, I was like, I didn't even really want to kind of acknowledge like, gee, wow, I had a hangover. Like that wasn't very pleasant or, you know, whatever. But if we don't pay attention to those guideposts, then we, we never really learn how to actually notice that the drinking at a certain point, maybe drink number four or whatever it is, that the drinking isn't bringing as much pleasure as we want. So for me, it was, that was a really pivotal realization that I do trace to mindfulness of being able to observe without judgment, what exactly is quote, the tipping point here? Like where, where does the drinking go from being 100% value add to being maybe a little bit in the middle to being, you know, maybe not even really worth it. Gotcha. So that, that is a really good way to, to build your awareness, which is, you know, step one in, in your list of steps is deciding to build your awareness. So all of those things that you mentioned is a great way to do that. And one thing that really stuck out to me when you were talking was, those of us who, you know, do have that tendency to be perfectionists, part of building your awareness is being able to say like, oh, that was a mistake. Yeah, definitely. I mean, not only, and again, I kind of struggle with like, even the word mistake, maybe it's like the perfectionist thing or whatever it is, even though you're absolutely right, Kendall, that's the right word. But what the framework I found more helpful was to say like, oh, wow, that, that didn't bring me pleasure, you know, because mm -hmm. there's a part of me that's willing to say, well, whatever, I'll make mistakes as long as it feels good. I don't <laughs> mind breaking the rules. As long as it's working for me, I don't really care what the guidelines are. You know? <laughs> but, um, it was for me, it was, and for the clients that I've worked with around this issue, it was really around getting clarity about saying, going past that sweet spot number actually doesn't bring me pleasure. And so it's not like I'm limiting myself because of some stupid, you know, extrinsic guideline that somebody else came up with. I'm, you know, and again, I don't even like the word limit. I would say more like I'm staying in the spot that feels truly best for me. That was for me and the clients I worked with has been the, the best framework for us to use. That, that's a really great way to kind of shift your perspective on that. I, I love that idea. So once, once we've decided to build our awareness about drinking, then we're going to observe 
kind of our drinking habits. And you say that we need to define our observation field. So what does that mean and how will it help us? Yeah. So whenever, and again, I'm coming from that yogic mindfulness, you know, background. So when we want to observe something, we have to decide, you know, what exactly is that field of observation? What am I observing here? So that might mean saying like, well, for a period of say two weeks, I'm just going to observe the count of drinks that I have and how I felt about them, right? So in a way, I have to admit, defining your field of observation is really maybe just kind of a fancy way of saying, you know, decide what is the time period, you know, that you're going to observe and then what are the factors that you're going to observe. And the ones that I found helpful to observe was just a daily entry of the number of drinks that you had and also to track was this a same day entry because that is the goal is to make a same day entry um but still also to track whether or not you did it so for example if if you find that on Wednesday you haven't updated your log since Saturday but you feel like you can remember it that's fine you can update your log through memory but you would still write down that this was an, a retroactive log because you're also in that field of observation. You're also tracking your ability to observe <laughs> um, on, on a faithful, you know, consistent level. That's that whole thing I was saying with mindfulness. It's also a little bit about metacognition. And so what I also tell people that at least I put into my field of observation and other clients that I've worked with have done is that we also include if we are estimating the number of drinks that we had or if this is an actual count, right? And and either way is fine. My log has included both, <laughs> especially earlier um, before I really had defined what exactly my sweet spot was and really learned that it did bring me the most pleasure if I actually wanted. It, it had helped me to learn how to want to pay attention to the number. I used to hate paying attention to the number. I'm like, whatever, I deal with you know, limits and restrictions and policies and et cetera all day. I don't want to deal with that in my drinking because I don't have a problem with it. So why can't I just do what feels right? And that worked, you know, very well for me for a long time until, like I said, I started to get a hangover and I was like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe it would serve me to start tracking and figuring this out. So again, the four um, components that I, you know, find helpful to track in that log of your field of observation is to maybe start with a two-week observation field and then track the following four things in your log is each day you write the date. So that's one. And then you write yes or no for whether or not it's the same day entry. And then you write the count of drinks <laughs> and then you write whether an, this is an estimate or this is an actual count. Okay. So it, that seems pretty simple, right? We're only writing down four things. I think so too. And I actually really like that the system gives you, it kind of normalizes the idea that you're not necessarily going to start always having an exact count and entering it every single day you know, especially when you're first starting out and trying to pay attention to something, it's easy, you know, to either forget 
or in psychology, what we have motivated forgetting, which is where like you, (laughs) but it's also a little bit of you just kind of choosing to not want to do it a little bit. And that's kind of baked into the cake with this too, because part of what you're also observing is your level of interest in observing your drinks. So that's where that metacognition comes in, or, or I've, I saw that you use the term meta-awareness. Exactly. Okay. So we're, when we drink, we're going to get out our little marble composition book <laughs> and we're going to say, okay, this is the date. We're saying, is, are we writing this log on the day that we drank, how many drinks we had? And is this an estimate or is this a count? And while we're doing that, we're also thinking about any motivation that we have to be doing this log. Maybe if we procrastinated because it's not a same day count, (laughs) why we did that. So there's a lot going on with really getting to know ourselves with just writing down four things. Yes. And the idea is definitely to be curious. Like, so that's a big thing about mindfulness is that it's without judgment. So, you know, like you were saying there, Kendall, if a person, you know, finds that they tend to not do same day counts on days when they've had a lot of drinks, which you, when you think about it would make sense, right? I mean, who, who goes on a big bender and then comes home to record it all right there (laughs) in their dating or their, I'm sorry. I also encourage dating logs in my dating book, (laughs) Um, but yeah, who, who goes on a big bender and, you know, then comes home and writes about it, you know, in their drinking logs. So some of it is really just information gathering and just noticing your own patterns without judgment. So that first two weeks, it's almost harder than it sounds to just write down and observe your drinking um, without allowing yourself, you know, to jump to any conclusions or jump to any judgments to just observe it. I love that idea because when I meditate, one thing I really struggle with is that I do judge myself. Like when a, a thought comes in, I'm like, oh, Stop thinking about that, Kendall Ann. So (laughs) I like the idea of instead of being judgmental to myself, to be curious of, okay, why? Like, why is that happening right now? Why am I having that experience? Exactly. And that's one reason also why limiting and defining your field of observation to say, for example, two weeks really frees you to do that because you can be like, look, I'm just gathering a snapshot of what I do, you know, in any given two-week period here. Um, This is not the time to try to shape or change my behavior. I'm just observing it. And if we weren't limiting it to two weeks, then we might also eventually be like, oh, well, gee, is it irresponsible of me to just be observing this without doing anything to try to, you know, change it or be accountable or evaluate this information? But, but by just really limiting it to two weeks, defining that field of observation, that does set the stage for just more of a neutral data recording curiosity type of a mindset because you know that you're not going to just observe forever. You're just observing for a little while and then you can take stock of it and figure out what's really best for you. Okay, so perfect. So for two weeks, anytime we drink, 
We're going to be writing those four things in our log. We're going to be thinking about how we're feeling, um, that little metacognition part. And then we're going to, we're going to try to do as many counts as possible instead of estimations. And then we're going to use that data to find, as you said before, our drinking sweet spot. So how exactly are we using that data to find that sweet spot? Well, because as you look at your log over time, you know, I'll just share with you, for example, my sweet spot is three drinks. You know, that just tends to be a great amount where I'm going to be feeling, definitely feeling the effects and feeling really good. But if I, you know, go beyond that, it's just going to, um, you know, maybe more lead to me just feeling dull or disconnected or even not feeling so great the next day. Um, and so there is something I think about seeing the big picture in aggregate um, that I think just helps people to have that awareness of saying, oh, wow, you know, those days when I went above and beyond that number just didn't really actually work out so well. They didn't bring me the best pleasure. And again, I'm not talking about anybody who's, you know, getting a DUI or, you know, causing problems at the office party. Like that was never me. And it was really never any of the clients that I have, because like I said, I don't work with alcoholism. I think it's its own, you know, very special niche and people deserve to have a clinician that is really well-trained and well-versed in that, if that is their issue. Um, so this is all just, you know, kind of, you know, more subtle, more nuanced things that do take a little bit more of an intentional charting and awareness. Otherwise, they can slip right by us. Again, especially for people that don't want to be big complainers or big whiners. I found that about myself at first too. When I would have like a little hangover, I would be like, well, whatever. I don't want to, you know, whine or complain. I can, this doesn't have to be big deal. I, I can just keep going. And so I, I would actually push it out of my awareness, out of my desire to just be strong and resilient. <laughs> Whereas again, actually slowing down and paying attention to what I was feeling was actually the most helpful thing I could do. Oh, that's great advice. So, and again, <clears throat> back to like looping in that metacognition about, okay, we're finding our sweet spot by making sure that I don't know if we didn't say anything that embarrassed ourselves because we had one drink too many or we didn't feel a hangover. And as we're looking at that data, if we're doing a good job of getting the counts in, then I'm, I guess that that picture would kind of crystallize pretty easily for us. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly did for me. And again, I think it, it, it either gave me permission or gave me cues to just keep looking at it because also otherwise we have a tendency to not notice or look at something if it's going well, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I might've not even noticed the days when maybe I had like just, uh, you know, that very small number of drinks and things went great. I wouldn't necessarily have been like, oh, wow, I need to note that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so also just, you know, encouraging ourselves for a limited period of time to just track it on a daily basis just guides us to pay attention. And again, it's not forever. I totally get it. I think it would be very cumbersome to have to, to do that like on an ongoing basis. And in the number two weeks is, you know, kind of different for each person. But I think for many people, two weeks gives us a pretty good snapshot. Though I will say for some women, they might want to do a month because for many women, they sometimes find, you know, that um, their menstrual cycle can really affect the way that their body responds to alcohol. Oh, wow. 
see, I need to kind of tune up my metacognition there and see if that does anything, (laughs) if I have that same experience. Yes, you know, but you can also take it kind of in graduated phases. So I'll share with you that when I did mine, um, I did it for two weeks and, you know, I wasn't necessarily paying attention to the menstrual cycle issue. I was just kind of going for broad brush strokes, you know, just saying, okay, how many drinks do I have? Do I count them or estimate them? Um, am I making same day entries and how am I feeling? You know, just tracking it for two weeks. And once it helped me to identify that drinking sweet spot, which for me was three number or three drinks, um, then once I was, you know, just more consistently wanting to stay in that zone, um, I was then able to start noticing more subtle things like, oh, gee, this, this is affecting me a little bit differently around my menstrual cycle. Or um, even for many, you know, women, you know, myself included, we can sometimes, you know, feel like we want some extra support. So for some women, it's chocolate. For some women, it's a chocolate martini. (laughs) And so, you know, learning that there might even be times of the month when we feel more desirous of a drink and that that might also be the time of the month when perhaps our body might even be more vulnerable to already feeling a little bit bloated or, you know, a little bit off um, or different. And so for me, again, it was just such a, a great way to change it up, to become curious and interested about it. That really freed me as opposed to feeling like, oh, I'm judgmental of myself. And if I have too many, then it's bad. It was more for me making that switch of saying, I'm just trying to figure out what's the best true pleasure spot for me. Okay. And so when we have our sweet spot, once we figured it out, we've, we've done all that work, what should we be telling ourselves about that sweet spot, like before we have our first glass of wine, should we be saying like, okay, Kendall Ann, remember sweet spot is three. Uh, how, how do we kind of get that with the whole being curious and not, not judgmental, but making it so we don't get hung over the next day? Well, I mean, again, everyone's different. And I, I'm sure everybody has always heard like the same tips about like, well, you know, you 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 drink a spacer, like every drink, you then have a glass of water and, you know, you alternate and all of this stuff. So I think all of that, you know, hangover avoidance tips, you know, always applies, you know, that that you can hear everywhere else. But as far as how to really try to keep your sweet spot in mind for yourself when you're drinking, I will say that it's a little bit of an art because, um, the, the first few times there's for me, at least, you know, there, there would be a part of me that would almost want to break the limit on purpose. And again, I don't even like the word limit, um, because I would feel like I just, I don't like being constrained. And so I, and that very simple part of me that would just feel like, well, more is more. And again, having the first couple of drinks does make you loosen up and maybe make you just kind of live in the moment, and not think so much about your drinking log and, you know, your sweet spot and all that stuff. So I think some of it is just, just practice and just learning and, you know, waking up the next day and saying, wow, that fourth one seemed like a good idea at the time. And yet, you know, here I am, you know, maybe not feeling totally my freshest. And so I guess that just reinforces for me again, that three really is you know, my, my sweet spot. But again, saying that in a way that's not angry or judgmental, but more affirmative of saying, I'm actually tracking here to find out where the most pleasure is. Um, and then, you know, the night of Kendall to get back to what, you know, you were saying of like in the moment, um, I, I do think that talking about it can help 
you know, sharing with people about what you're doing because you're trying to build some neural connections between, you know, your your feel good, let's throw caution to the to the wind self, and part of you that has that um, more overarching sense of self observation and place and time and perspective and all that stuff. You're trying to bridge those two selves, and so talking about it can help um, in the moment. Also, um, some, some people have done things like on their phone, cause some people check their phone, especially when they're out and just, you know, putting things on there that remind themselves like, you know, three is your sweet, sweet spot, you know, stay in the zone, enjoy this buzz because you're in the sweet spot, you know, just kind of reminding themselves and giving themselves encouragement along the way. But I would just normalize that it's, it's not going to always happen naturally to build a new habit. So back to mindfulness again, even having nothing at all to do with drinking, when I'm working with clients about mindfulness and meditation, they'll come to my office, they'll learn, you know, some meditation, and then they'll say, okay, I'm going to do this, you know, for five minutes every day. Sounds very simple. Just going to do this for five minutes a day, and it's going to really help me. And then not surprisingly, they don't do it for five minutes a day. They come back a week later. They're like, oh, frankly, I forgot, or I don't know, I just lost track of it. And they get really down on themselves. And I have to help them remember that even something as simple as trying to meditate for five minutes a day, um, or not only remember, but actually do it, um, it's, 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 it's easier said than done. And so we have to be patient with ourselves. We have to be compassionate with ourselves. One of the things also in Buddhist circles that is discussed a lot is that the way for growth is the balance between honesty and compassion, right? So we have to be honest. We have to be willing to say, you know, yeah, that was too much. I went a little overboard. But we also have to be able to be compassionate, again, assuming that we're not in a position where we went out and, you know, got drunk and caused damage and harm to other people or something, assuming it's just in the situation of like, you know, maybe you had literally one too many and you didn't do anything wrong, but you're just feeling a little off. So you want to be honest with yourself about that. But then also be compassionate and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm still just a few weeks into this sweet spot thing. I'm still finding my way. It's, you know, one of those learn by experience things. And so I'm going to diligently note this. I'm going to be honest about it. And, and I'm going to practice again tonight, perhaps. So, and, and I love the idea of talking to people about it because that does, you know, make all those different neural pathways kind of light up. But you don't mean like we should go to the bar and like get on the microphone and be like, hey, everybody, just so you know, my sweet spot is three drinks. <laughs> no, no. However, however, um, no, I, I get that. Like you don't want to <laughs> get on the microphone and say that. At least I don't. Um, but I have, for example, and I've seen other people do similar things where, you know, when the bartender says, you know, do you want another I've responded something like, well, you know, three is my sweet spot. So I'm staying within that bandwidth. And um, I swear the bartenders give me the most friendly, affirmative smile. You know what I mean? They're just like, there's a lady that knows her limits, you know, and they, yeah. they I think it, it puts everybody at ease. And one thing also that it's helped me to do is um, 
like my favorite drink is to just have a Tito's and soda because it's also like, you know, very low cal, very low carb, like very <laughs> organic vodka. Um, so what I'll do is I'll also say, you know, can I have a Tito's and soda please in a tall glass so I can have a little bit more hydration because of what I've learned as well for myself is that I'm a sipper. I just like, as I said, more is more for me. And so like, as long as I'm taking a drink, there's a certain part of me, as long as it's a drink and it has alcohol in it, I'm fine, you know? And so I've learned that asking for um, the single shot in a tall glass, then I just simply say, so I can have some more hydration helps me a lot. Um, but again, what I'm still doing there, Kendall, is I am talking about my drinking on a certain level as I'm saying, I'll have it this way so I can stay hydrated. Or I've said to the bartender, like I mentioned, like, oh, well, I'm staying in the bandwidth of three here. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go a little slower or, you know, whatever it is, um, little ways. And certainly with friends, I think if you're out with friends, you can talk about it. Or certainly if you're on a date, I mean, that's a, I, I wouldn't talk about it too much on a first date per se, but as you're getting to know somebody, um, you know, to, to share that you, you know, count your drinks and make sure you stay within a, a part that has felt good for you. I would hope that your date would support that. <laughs> <laughs> I, these are great ideas. And as I'm hearing you talk, like I'm thinking about, okay, how would I apply this? And do you think that this is a good idea? What if like after you got, when you're in the zone, right, you're at your sweet spot, you're at your three drinks and you feel the hey Kendallan, more is more voice comments telling you to order a fourth. What if you just paused and instead instead say, hey, I'll take a diet coke this round? Like, would that give you the kind of just hesitation enough to say in your mind, like, okay, yeah, this this is just I'm gonna stay in my sweet spot just by giving myself this one second pause. So yes, I think that's a great idea. Um, the like the the thing I would say though is like I'm just picturing for myself, and I'll share with you kind of what I've done in that department. Is that for me probably ordering a diet coke um, if it were like say 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. or 10 p.m. whatever time it is that you reach that space. I don't want to have caffeine after 12 noon because otherwise I will be up all night. But as, <laughs> as I alluded to earlier, I do watch my calories and my sugar pretty closely. So one thing I have done, Kendall, as a way, as you said, to like give yourself something else at that point um, is I wouldn't normally just like... Um, say like, well, I just want a glass of pineapple juice or whatever, you know? <laughs> um, but, but what I might do at that time is to the bartender, you know, I, I think I'm probably, you know, I've had probably enough drinks for the moment, but you know, could you make me like a pineapple with a splash of cranberry or something like that? So I might get myself a drink that would normally feel a little bit too sugary, but that, is like a special treat for myself in that moment. Because the thing also with alcohol is that it does elevate your blood sugar. So with a lot of people, especially people who drink wine or sugary drinks, end up experiencing as part of their buzz, they don't even realize it, but a lot of their buzz is actually a sugar buzz. And then when that starts to crash, because, you know, maybe they are at that, you know, they're, they're declining after three or whatever. Um, then their blood sugar starts crashing and their energy starts going away and they start feeling like the party's over and they don't want to feel that way. And they think in that moment that their only choice is to either go home or to have another, you know, Tito's and cranberry 
Whereas actually, again, especially if you've just been drinking lighter drinks like Tito's and soda, or, you know, I swear I'm not endorsed by Tito's. (laughs) If if you're somebody who normally stays away from having too much sugar um, for that kind of final nightcap, if you've got yourself a a sugary virgin drink, it can actually be quite exciting and help that blood sugar to stay up. That's a great idea. And I didn't... I didn't even make that connection about like, you might be on a sugar high and when you're drinking your Pinot Grigio, and then it would lead to a bit of a crash. Yes. Especially if you go to restaurants and you order like from their cocktail menu, I always tell them, hold the simple syrup. Please do not put simple syrup in my drinks because what that is, is it's literally pure sugar water. Um, so I just, I keep it simple. As I said, for myself, I'm just, you know, Tito's and soda. And then I'll have like a pineapple cranberry if I really feel like a force. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is really fantastic advice, Dr. Chloe. I, I, I think that this is, you know, the kind of thing that we all can give it a try. I mean, we're not, we're not really, as you said before, like placing harsh limits on ourselves or having to do tons of prep work to do this. We're just, you know, observing without judgment. We're making connections to the way we're feeling about drinking, all in hopes that we find this sweet spot because it's going to be what's most pleasurable for us. And it's a we're going to form it in a positive way instead of saying, I need to know my limit. Exactly, Kendall. I love that. Okay. So now that, now that we're all going to know how to drink mindfully, you got to tell me about this book that you wrote that Deepak Chopra reviewed as awesome. Please tell us about that book because that sounds awesome. Yes, yes. So the book is called Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety. And I I was thrilled that a Deepak Chopra actually did endorse it. Um, I'm not somebody that ever suffers from imposter syndrome, but in that one moment, I was like, wait a minute, are you guys serious? Like, this must be a mistake. Like, I really can't um, but it was true. And then also Jim McCann, the founder of 1-800-Flowers, also called it a game changer um, because it really does have, in my opinion, some truly fresh takes on how to manage this nervous energy, which some people label as anxiety, which, you know, kind of in some senses is anxiety. But what people don't realize is that there's a healthy function of anxiety, which is to stimulate preparation behaviors or self-care behaviors or whatever it is. It's a healthy awareness. So in nervous energy, harness the power of your anxiety. Again, I just teach people to kind of study their anxiety a little bit and figure out what it needs. And then I have nine techniques in the book that, um, you know, have people teach them how to, how to make the most of this gift of anxiety. Um, so the book is available in hardcover, ebook as well as audio because I felt like it was really important in psychology. We have something called modeling where when you can see or hear somebody talking about a behavior, sometimes it's easier to take that on. So the book is um, in print or ebook or or audible. And if people do get it, I just want to say if you kindly, you know, please review the book on Amazon or Goodreads or Barnes and Noble or preferably all three. Um, and you send me a screenshot of your, you know, review through social media. I'm everywhere all over social media or through my website. You can go to nervousenergybook.com. It's super easy, nervousenergybook.com. 
um, you know, we're doing master classes and stuff. And if people are reviewing it, that helps me so much in the algorithms. And I would love to thank you if you are able to do that. Okay, Dr. Chloe. Well, we will definitely do that. And in the show notes, I'm going to put um, a link to where we can buy Dr. Chloe's book and the link to her article about drinking mindfully. Thank you so much for being here. This was this was really a treat for me. And I, I learned a ton from you. Thank you, Kendall. And I know you have a lot of dating listeners too, obviously. So I just want them to also know that my other book, Dr. Chloe's 10 Commandments of Dating is also available in print as well as audiobook. And the same thing is true. If anybody wants to leave me reviews on any of those sites, it helps me tremendously. And if anyone does that, let me know. And I want to be able to um, make sure I send you a thank you. Okay. And I'm, you're probably going to have to come back on to talk about that dating book because I need help. Don't tempt me, girl. <laughs> All right, Dr. Chloe, you have a great day. Thanks, Kendall. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you again to Dr. Chloe Carmichael for being on this show. Uh, you gave us some really great advice about how to use mindfulness to drink moderately. Uh, remember to check the show notes for links to how you can get all of Dr. Chloe's books, which of course you're going to review, um, as well as a link to her article about drinking mindfully. And while you're at it, get ready to read and review my book. It's going to be coming out probably within the next month. I'm super duper excited for you to read it. Um, so keep an eye out for posts from social media so you know exactly when my book is going to be published. Until then, if you are in an unsafe and unhealthy relationship, please know that there is help available. Call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Again, that number is 1-800-799-7233.